I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading 1 Corinthians chapters 10 through 13. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning with verse 1, we have a warning to these Corinthians. Verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happen unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore let him that thinketh he stand take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Well, before Paul gets back to the discussion regarding eating meat offered to idols, which he began back in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, he makes it clear to the Corinthians in these 14 verses that God does not ignore rebellion against himself. He does so by making reference to God's covenanted people of the Old Testament, the Jews. Even though he had a special protective relationship with the nation of Israel, he punished them individually and corporately for their disobedient acts. He identifies that special relationship between God and Israel in verses 1-4 through as he indicates that the Hebrews were under the cloud of God's direction. That's the Shekinah glory. And uh, there's an article I've written on that entitled The Shekinah Glory. You can find that under the topic section of BibleTrack.org or if you're looking with the notes along with the notes here, uh, you can click on the link there entitled The Shekinah Glory. That Shekinah Glory miraculously helped them cross the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 13. They ate the same spiritual meat, the manna, in Exodus chapter 16, and they drank the same water miraculously provided from the rock where he refers to that here as the rock that followed them. Paul is speaking of the two Old Testament instances in Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, and Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 13 in this passage. In the Rari Study Bible, Charles Rari has the following entry here. Since the rock is mentioned twice and is in different settings, a rabbinic legend held that a material rock actually followed the Israelites. 
Paul, however, says that it was Christ who was with Israel all the way. Despite the fact that all these Hebrews were chosen by God, Paul says in verse 5, But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Paul then makes reference to four separate examples of Israel's disobedience. In other words, in verse 6, where he says, Lust after evil things, and the resulting action from God. In verse 7, he references idolatry. That's first seen in Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 6, on the occasion when the children of Israel worshipped the golden calf that Aaron claimed had jumped out of the fire. What was the resulting action of God because of this sin? Well, Exodus 32:35 says, And the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf which Aaron made. And then in verse 8, he references fornication. Secondly, Paul here reminds the Corinthians of the occasion when Israel joined herself to Baal Peor back in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. That act involved both spiritual and sexual unfaithfulness, and the result was 23,000 slain by God in one day, 24,000 overall. And then in verse 9, he references the tempting or challenging of God. Paul tells that snake story from Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. That's when the people of Israel murmured against God and Moses, which was an unwise move. God sent serpents. Then God sent a method of individual physical salvation from the life-threatening bite of those serpents. And then finally, in verse 10, Paul talks about the murmuring of the Old Testament. He finally reminds them of Israel's rebellion in Numbers chapter 14. That's when they rejected the report of Joshua and Caleb regarding Canaan and chose rather to heed the report of the ten other spies. You'll recall that Israel chose not to go into Canaan that day, and that's not all. They wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb to death. Well, to make a long story short, a whole generation of Hebrews fell at the hand of God for this very disobedience. So, what's the point here? I mean, why did Paul recount these four instances of Israel's disobedience? Well, look at verse 11. It says, Now all these things happen unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Here is a principle of God with which many believers seem to have a problem. God's always used physical chastisement to correct His people when they disobey. There are a host of teachers today who insist that Satan is the source of all sickness in believers, that God never inflicts sickness on his children. Well, that teaching has no foundation in Scripture whatsoever. In the next chapter, we'll see that Paul attributes sickness and death among the Corinthians to God's chastising hand. In chapter 11, verses 29 to 32, we'll read those in a few moments. And that's just exactly as he did in these four Old Testament instances. It's well-established principle of God's dealing with his people. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 8 says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If he endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons, for what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons." To express it simply, God deals with us just as a good father deals with his son. He corrects him, he corrects that son when he disobeys. Verse 13 ties this section together for the believer. It's a great promise in that verse that says, 
There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Now let's understand the context in which this was written. It follows four instances where God's people, Israel, succumbed to the tempting circumstances that were around them and forsook the leadership of God. Then in verse 14, we see the segue from Israel's struggle with idolatry back to the discussion of the meat offered to idols issue, which he began back in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. In verse 14 here, Paul says simply, Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I suppose in speaking of idolatry, we should also point out Paul's reference to it in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Here's what he says there. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The Greek word used there by Paul is pleonexia, and it's typically equated with greediness. There it's translated covetousness in the King James Version. However, only used ten times in the New Testament, context seems to indicate some dishonesty or problems with integrity in the process of exercising that greed. Since Paul equates covetousness with idolatry, and God destroyed Israel and Judah for idolatry, believers' interests are best served by steering away from any covetous activity in their lives. Although in the context of this passage of Scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 8 down through 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is obviously speaking of literal idolatry as practiced in the pagan temples. Now, beginning here in verse 15 of chapter 10, Paul gets back to the discussion which began back in chapter 8. What about that meat offered to those idols? Verse 15, I speak as to wise men, judge ye what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold Israel after the flesh, are they not they which eat of the sacrifices, partakers of the altar? What say I then, that the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Well, here Paul makes a distinction regarding knowledge of the origin of the meat that a person eats. He seems to be saying here that the Corinthians should not seek meat offered to pagan gods. Actively seeking it would simply, well, it would imply participation in the pagan ritual. Paul implies this differentiation. He says the meat is not actually contaminated in any way, but to seek it out might be taken as an endorsement of pagan practices. Then Paul uses two examples to demonstrate that a substance only has a greater meaning within the context of the ritual itself. First of all, verses 16 and 17. As the bread and cup in communion are symbols of the body and blood of Christ, and they are not the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ himself, just 
symbols. And in verse 18, he makes the point that the meat offered on the Jewish altar was a symbol at the time of the offering, but nourishment for the priest and their families it was used for afterward. So, just so, this meat offered to idols only has a pagan spiritual significance within the context of the pagan ritual itself. Therefore, within the context of the ritual, eating that meat is wrong for a believer. We see that in verses 19 to 22. In very strong words, Paul discourages participation in any way with anything that would endorse or encourage the practice of offering meat to pagan idols. But the meat, I mean, what about the meat? I mean, really, what about the meat? Well, look at verses 23 to 33. Verse 23, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles that eat, asking no question for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you eat, asking no question for conscience sake. But if any man say unto you, This is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that for which I give thanks? Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Give none offense neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved." Now, you've often heard the old saying, what you don't know can't hurt you. By the way, that saying isn't true in every context, but perhaps it is here. So, is the meat itself in this situation really ritually unclean, per se? I mean, to believers, if it's been offered and sacrificed to idols? Well, according to this passage, no. The anchor verse for this position is verse 23, which says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Two words should be noted here. Those words are expedient and edify. The word expedient comes from the Greek verb sympharo and means to bring together or to profit. The Greek verb for edify is oikodomeo and means to build up. Now, here's the question for all Christian activity. Does it profit and build up others? Then Paul elaborates by sharing a practice which some might consider hypocritical. In other words, sometimes it's okay to eat the meat, and sometimes it's not okay. There are a lot of people who like absolutes. The sometimes and sometimes not kind of throws them. This discussion is really a principled discussion about any number of practices not just about meat offered to idols. The real issue is whether or not something one allows in its lifestyle becomes a stumbling block to others, like eating meat offered to idols. Mature believers don't practice offensive habits around people who are offended by those habits. Now, verse 25 is clear here. Don't ask. 
Verse 26 explains why. Wherever it comes from, it all belongs to God. Paul expands on this lesson in verses 27 through 29. He says, if you go to a feast where you suspect the meat's been offered to idols, just go ahead and eat it. However, if someone says, hey, that meat's been offered to idols, then don't eat it. That's really simple, don't you agree? Well, verse 32 says, Give none offense neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. That verse covers everybody, Jews, Gentiles, and believers. Paul's talking about projecting a testimony here. Mature Christians are willing to limit their liberty in Christ to project a positive testimony. Well, now how far do you carry this testimony thing anyway? Well, let's see what Paul's personal practice was in verse 33. Here's what he says. Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. When he was around those who might take offense to certain aspects of the liberty he experienced in Christ, he limited his liberty for their sakes. That's just what spiritually minded, mature Christians do. If you're looking for a memory verse that accurately encapsulates Paul's position here, there it is in verse 31. It says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Paul completes this discussion in chapter 11, verse 1, when he says this, Be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. In other words, Paul recommends that others adopt his practice regarding this meat offered to idols thing, which he's just outlined in these preceding verses. If you'd like more perspective on this issue, Paul also deals with it in Romans chapter 14. In that passage, Paul expands the discussion beyond that of eating meat offered to idols. He covers all aspects of a Christian's personal testimony before the world. Then um, in chapter 11, beginning with verse 1 down through verse 16, that's where Paul presents himself as an example. Verse 1. Be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I deliver them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judge in yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. 
Now, verse 1 here is really a completion of the previous chapter, as I mentioned a little earlier. Incidentally, chapter divisions in the Bible were added in 1205 by a guy named Stephen Langton, who was a professor in Paris. He later became the Archbishop of Canterbury. He put these uh, chapter divisions into a Vulgate edition of the Bible. It was uh, Robert Stephanus, though, a, a Parisian book printer, who took over the verse divisions and indicated in the Hebrew Bible and assigned numbers to those verses within the chapter divisions that had already been assigned to Stephen Langton. While he was riding on horseback from Paris to Lyons, he affixed his own verse divisions to the New Testament and numbered those verses within Langton's chapter divisions. Prior to that time, when folks looked at the Old Testament and the New Testament manuscripts, there were no divisions, just one continuous long epistle from beginning to end. In this new topic, beginning with verse 2, Paul outlines the relationship that exists among God, husbands, and wives. I should point out that there's no distinction in the Greek between husband and man. Aner is the Greek word there. Nor is there a distinction between wife and woman. Gune is the word in the Greek used for both uh, translations into the English. It's context alone that indicates how these Greek words are appropriately rendered in English. The relationship of God to a wife through a husband is an important concept stated in verse 3. And it's reinforced throughout the Old and the New Testaments. The discussion here is a symbol of this authority. Some have taken these verses to mean that a woman should wear some sort of a head covering when going to church. Since there's no scriptural evidence of this practice outside of this passage, it's difficult to say what their practice really was. In first century Hebrew culture, it's very likely that women did wear some sort of a head covering. However, such was not the case in the first century in Roman and Greek culture. It does appear from this passage that hair plays an important part in the discussion of a covering. In relationship to a woman, Paul seems to be making a point that long hair for a man is not appropriate. It indicates submission and not authority. Verse 15, conversely, would indicate that the whole issue of a woman's covering is solved with her long hair. Her hair, in fact, is her covering. Whatever the historic context of this passage, I'm convinced that if it were important for a woman to wear a covering on her head in addition to her hair, it would have been a subject receiving attention elsewhere in Scripture. Therefore, I'm relatively certain that Paul's solution to the hair covering issue is for a woman to be covered with hair distinguishable in style from that of a man. That's the main point of the discussion that we see concluding here in verses 14 and 15. How long is long and how short is short? Well, search me. I believe to get caught up in that kind of argument is to minimize the whole point. This text is about relationships and authority. Style is really incidental to the emphasis of this passage. For a discussion of personal preference in one's lifestyle, I always defer to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and, and then I throw in Romans chapter 14. Romans 14.21 has always served as my guide on such issues when it says, It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. 
I mean, a believer committed to Christ simply doesn't want to cause other people to stumble. That believer will live accordingly. He won't let a hairstyle preference hamper his personal testimony. Now, in the process of this discussion, Paul's very specific and emphatic about the relationship between husbands and wives, invoking, by the way, their order and creation to make his point in verses 7 through 12. He first refers back to the order of creation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, all the way down to chapter 2, verse 25, the creation of man in God's image and the woman from the man. From the record of creation, Paul concludes three things. In verse 7, he concludes that he, being the man, is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. In verse 8, he concludes, the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. And in verse 9, neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. However, after making those three distinctions, Paul concludes in verses 11 and 12 when he says, Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. In other words, husbands and wives complete each other, and they have separate and distinct roles within the marriage relationship. However, it can't be denied from this passage that Paul is asserting that the husband should serve in the dominant role within the family structure. That concept doesn't diminish the concept of equality between husbands and wives, but rather designates roles within the marriage relationship. I mean, hey, in an army, somebody's got to be in charge. Incidentally, it occurs to me that the practice of removing one's hat in church or doing prayer must have been originally derived from verse 4. It's not completely clear the meaning of Paul's reference to angels in verse 10. It would appear that angels have certain expectations of order within the family and within the church. I mean, we wouldn't want to disappoint the angels now, would we? Finally, in 1 Corinthians eleven sixteen, Paul says, But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Well, that settles that issue. No contention within the local assembly of believers. This verse is obviously intended as a follow-up to the discussion of verses 1-15. through 15. Therefore, with regard to the relationship of men and women within the family and the church, just follow the guidelines prescribed in order to avoid contention within the assembly. Within the church, this passage implies that men, that men are to take the leadership role. So, when's the Lord's Supper not really the Lord's Supper? Well, let's look at that in verses 17 to 22 of chapter 11. Verse 17, Now, in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When ye come together therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? 
What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Well, they called what they were doing the Lord's Supper, but their abuse of that made it irreverent and just plain old wrong. Paul says in verse 20, When ye come together, therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. It was a strange custom they seemed to observe. It was perhaps one more akin to the pagan love feast so popular in their city, the city of Corinth, than to any semblance of a scriptural observance of communion. Paul tells them to do their eating and drinking at home. Well, here's the problem. To these carnal Christians, their rendition of the Lord's Supper was just more akin to hedonistic pleasure than legitimate observance of the Lord's Supper. They just couldn't seem to bring themselves to quit that disgusting practice. So in verse 17, Paul characterizes their coming together for communion as improper when he says it's for the worse. This has caused divisions, he says in verse 18. Now there's heresy associated with the practice in verse 19, but there are some who are honorable when it says that they which are approved. Don't do your eating at church while calling it the observance of communion. That's the message here. Then Paul gives us a brief explanation of the ordinance and to the Corinthians in verses 23 to 26. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Here Paul explains the purpose and the simplicity of the ordinance that brings into focus the sacrifice that Christ made for each of us on the cross. The institution of this ordinance is found in Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, and Luke chapter 22. Now, here are the essentials of communion that are outlined in this passage. First of all, Jesus prayed. Then Jesus broke the unleavened bread, unleavened because, of course, it was the Passover feast. Jesus designated that the bread was symbolic of his body. Obviously, it was not literally Christ's body as some teach. At this point, Jesus is still living and standing before them. Then Jesus likewise passed the cup, which was a symbol of his blood. Believers participate as a reminder, in remembrance of the words there, as a reminder of Christ's death until his return. Now, what about those unexplained illnesses and deaths in the Corinthian church? Well, Paul deals with those in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 34. Verse 27, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. 
And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together into condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. Now here's the portion of Scripture that gives a lot of believers trouble. Let me introduce this passage by asking this question. Is God ever directly responsible for making a believer sick or causing him to die? Well, this passage answers that question. There are many Bible preachers and teachers who teach that all sickness comes from Satan and that all wellness and prosperity comes from God. Along with that teaching, it is said that, number one, since all sickness comes from Satan, then, number two, God wants everyone to be healthy, number three, that God has power over Satan, number four, and all we must do is claim health and rebuke Satan in order to be healed all the time, and lastly, number five, and if we're not healed, it's because of a lack of our faith in God's power to heal. It's a handsome doctrine that, by the way, I too once embraced for a short time in my early years. Only one problem, a big problem. It's not a scriptural doctrine. And there's no local assembly where one may see this principle actually in action. Those churches all have the same proportion of illnesses as any other church. As a matter of fact, Paul deals with this very notion back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-14. through 14. Now, here's the reality of the issue. In fact, this passage clearly states that God himself has caused illness to actually come on some of these Corinthian believers. Now, some would argue, however, that God only permitted Satan to make them ill. That's simply not so. I mean, look at our passage here. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 30 to 32 says this, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Hebrews 12, verses 6 through 8 goes on to say, in another passage, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. So who made these Corinthians weak, sick, and dead? Well, indisputably, it was God who did so. Should that surprise those of us who've studied the Old Testament? I mean, in fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 14, I mean, look at those again, and you'll see four examples of physical chastisement that Paul cites for Israel's disobedience. Meanwhile, back at the Corinthian church, what was so sinful that, I mean, God had taken the lives of some there while afflicting others with sickness? Well, here it was. It was rebellion. Well, you say, there must have been more to it than that. Well, not really. I mean, the circumstances were probably a little bit unique by today's standards, but ultimately they were afflicted for rebellion. Their actual act of rebellion was their refusal to observe the Lord's Supper with the proper intent. Many have misunderstood what the word unworthily there means in verses 27 and 29. Actually, the definition is given in verse 29 when it says, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. In the written notes I have in bold, not discerning the Lord's body, because that's the key. Unworthily here has been misunderstood to mean that uh, a person has each sin you've ever committed in your life, you've remembered it and confessed it before God prior to taking communion. 
No, that's not what the Greek word anoxios means here, nor is that concept supported in context. The definition is given in verse 29 when it says, again, not discerning the Lord's body. I mean, it means that they were not observing the Lord's Supper in a worthy fashion, making it instead akin to the pagan love feast. Their observance was not at all a reflection on Christ's sacrifice. It was an unworthy observance, you see. If confused on this issue, go back to verses 23 to 26, and there you can review the essentials of the practice of communion. Now, there's a principle here. Rebellion against God is rebellion against God, Old and New Testament. When a believer refuses to do what God directs him to do, then he should expect a nudge from God. Chastisement is God's loving way of correcting his children. It's just the way that a good father corrects his children. There's one more point that's important to mention here. Confession. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31 says, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Oh, by the way, 1 John 1, 9 says it like this. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, it's just plain old easier in the midst of our own rebellion to just confess it before God and then get God's forgiveness. And there's some implied eternal security doctrine here in verse 32. It says, but when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Chastisement is God's method of dealing with disobedient believers. And it's not God's method for those believers to be condemned with the world. A clear distinction is made here between the way that God deals with disobedient believers as opposed to the way God deals with those who have rejected Christ for salvation. Now, beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 for the next three chapters, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts. So what about those spiritual gifts? For those who may be embracing the practice of speaking in tongues, I'd ask respectfully that you pay attention to these next three chapters and keep an open mind. All three chapters, chapters 12, 13, and 14, should be taken together for a full overview. And today we'll just be looking at 12 and 13, and in four days we'll be looking at chapter 14. In chapters 12 through 14, Paul deals with a problem at the Corinthian church, which he felt no need to deal with with any of the other churches, well, at least by letter. That problem was the abuse of the manifestation of the spiritual gifts. More particularly, the problem at the church seemed to be an unbridled manifestation of the vocal, showy gifts in the church services, tongues and prophesying. I think it's important to note that there are no passages in the Scripture promoting speaking in tongues in church services. New believers in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19, well, they spoke in tongues at salvation, and it was a sign there to the Jews. 1 Corinthians one twenty-two says the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. The practice of speaking in tongues is mentioned nowhere else except in these three chapters to the Corinthians. Now, if you read the 11 chapters leading up to chapter 12, you'll have to admit that the people of Corinth were, well, as a whole, pretty, well, they were pretty spiritually challenged. Let's review for a moment. They were called carnal and not spiritual in chapter 3. They were divided and contentious. He rebukes them for their haughty attitudes in chapter 4, for their embracing immorality in chapter 5, 
and their disregard for personal testimony before the secular court system in chapter 6. They lacked the spiritual insight to honor Paul as God's messenger in chapter 9, to the point that he chose not to even allow them to aid in his financial support. In chapter 11, we find them emulating the pagan love feast in the name of the Lord's Supper. So let me ask you this question. Why is it that so many churches today are comfortable emulating the practices of the most carnal, immoral, contentious, rebellious, ordinance abusive church in the New Testament? Well, I could go ahead and tell you why right now, but I think it'll be more meaningful to you if we just systematically formulate the answer over these next three chapters. Let's begin reading with chapter 12, verse 1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away into these dumb idols, even as you were led. Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. The Corinthians here were unregenerate pagans, for the most part prior to getting saved. Paul makes a distinction between the kinds of statements that would be made by demonic-inspired individuals as opposed to Holy Spirit-led individuals, as in being led by the Spirit of God. And those people led by the Spirit of God would never curse Jesus, but rather they'd acknowledge Him as Lord. In chapter 12, beginning with verse 4, we see that the Holy Spirit gives different people different gifts. Verse 4, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are diversities of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit withal. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and the selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will." We see that here Paul explains that there are differing complementary gifts manifested in believers when they are controlled by the Holy Spirit. Notice the operative word there being controlled. Paul lists nine spiritual gifts, and here they are. The first one, the word of wisdom, then word of knowledge, then faith. Number four, gifts of healing, the working of miracles and prophecy. And number seven, discerning of spirits, diverse kinds of tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. That's nine. Now, the Scripture gives us very little insight regarding the exact form of the practice for the word of wisdom or the word of knowledge or for the discerning of spirits. It would appear that the very vocal gifts and operation of the church were the word of knowledge, prophecy, and diverse kinds of tongues, as seen in Paul's discussion over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8-10, through 10, and, by the way, all of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Based upon the discussions of those two chapters, it appears that these three manifestation gifts were prophecy-related. In other words, they were used for the purpose of sharing direct revelation from God to the people. Well, and of course, the interpretation of tongues goes along with the diverse kinds of tongues that were spoken uh, within the church services. The less popular gifts of these eight verses are faith, the gifts of healing, the working of miracles, and the discerning of spirits. 
We assume from this passage that faith refers to one's ability to trust God amidst unfavorable circumstances. The plural form of gifts of healing is curious. Some have taken this to mean that there were those who had the power to heal others, while many see it as the manifestations of individual healings. However, the next gift mentioned is that of the working of miracles. That would seem to indicate that there were those around whom healings and miracles seemed to just take place in the course of their exercise of spiritual giftedness. The discerning of spirits in verse 10 is definitely the ability to determine that which is of God and that which is not of God. The problem here, well, as seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, seemed to be that there was more personal recognition and glory heaped upon those who seemingly served as God's voice in the services, specifically those that were speaking in tongues and prophesying. There apparently was jealousy from those who couldn't seem to muster up tongues or prophecy in those services, and a great sense of personal pride for those who could. Paul's goal in these verses is to show that the Holy Spirit manifest himself in believers in quiet activities as well. It's not all about being the center of attention in a worship service. Well, how about an analogy? Paul gives one beginning in verse 12. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, Because I am not the hand, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, Because I am not the eye, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body, as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. When these next few verses, Paul uses an illustration of a human body. In this analogy, everybody wanting to speak in tongues in a church service is like every part of the human body wanting to be another part of the human body, a more visible part instead. Paul is personifying and imagining a foot being jealous of a hand and an ear being jealous of an eye. In verse 23, Paul speaks of the parts we keep covered up and out of sight as the most important parts of the body. In other words, it's a good thing. Our hearts or kidneys don't give up their functions to become hands. It's obvious from this illustration that Paul's minimizing the importance of those showy manifestations 
that were taking place in the church services at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 12.13 is worth a special note here. It says, For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. The term baptism of the Holy Spirit is, well, it's used incorrectly in some circles today. But here's the exact context, the exact definition by Paul. It's the process whereby we are saved. That's right. All believers become believers by being baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. In other words, if you haven't been baptized by the Holy Spirit, you hadn't been saved. This doctrine is further confirmed by Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, when he says this, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. So to simply restate it, all believers are baptized by the Holy Spirit. It should be pointed out that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a separate process from the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's best seen in the discussion, by the way, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. That verse says, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. To sum it up, the baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place at salvation for every believer, while the filling of the Holy Spirit, well, now that's a continuing process. And look at the discussion in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21 for more details on the filling of the Holy Spirit. Well, how about providing us with some sort of a priority list? Well, there's your list in verses 27 to 31. Verse 27. Now, ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. And God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers. After that, miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, have all the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. Now, just in case they misunderstood which gifts were most vital there within the local assembly, Paul actually orders those gifts according to their value in the church. Yes, he does order those gifts. And take a look at the order. First apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers. After that, miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Hey, uh, why is this list different from the one found in verses 4 through 11? Well, I don't miss the point of the list here. The items in the list are included to highlight one important reality. What's the last gift in this order of gifts listed in order of priority within the local church? Well, if you said tongues, you are correct. He concludes this chapter with the statement, but covet earnestly the best gifts. In other words, you Corinthians, you need to get your priorities in order. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we look at the qualities of love. Let me give a brief explanation before we begin reading here. We come to an oft-used passage in weddings. It's called the love chapter. Now, here's a question. Why is it that when Paul is in the midst of discussing the manifestation of spiritual gifts in the church service, 
Why does he seemingly pause that discussion to talk about love? Well, in fact, he's still talking about the manifestation of the spiritual gifts. Here's the deal. It's obvious that these Corinthians had developed a skewed system of determining whether or not a person was led by the Holy Spirit. Remember, these folks were carnal, not spiritual. He says exactly that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He calls them carnal there. Despite this fact, when they showed up for the church services on Sunday, it appeared, I would say only appear, that every one of them was under Holy Spirit leadership. Well, why is that? Well, it's because they carried on with the manifestation of spiritual gifts with a passion. Looking ahead to chapter 14, we see that fact verified in chapter 14, verse 26, when it says, Paul's talking there, How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you hath the psalm, hath the doctrine, hath the tongue, hath the revelation, hath an interpretation? Let all things be done unto edifying. So you see, even though Paul called them carnal, they were wild with their carrying on in the church services. Chapter 13 is sandwiched here between 12 and 14, and it's here to demonstrate what the authentic indicator of leadership of the Holy Spirit really is. It's not showboating in the service, but it's a continual demonstration of love. He's not talking about love on Sundays only, but he's talking about love continually, love all the time. The spiritual gifts, by the way, are nothing without love. That's what we see beginning in chapter 13, verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Now Paul's making a big point here. Speaking in tongues does not indicate spiritual leadership. Prophesying doesn't indicate that spiritual leadership either. The gift of knowledge does not indicate Holy Spirit leadership. The gift of faith does not indicate Holy Spirit leadership. Oh, and I should also add to that, the working of miracles through faith, that doesn't indicate spirit leadership either. All of these are contained in the list of spiritual gifts he mentioned in chapter 12, verses 8 through 10. It's interesting that he's not challenging them directly on the authenticity of the quality of their claim to possess these gifts. But what he is saying is that the real indicator of spiritual leadership is love, not the practicing and the manifestation of spiritual gifts. He uses some pretty blunt language here to describe their uselessness at the end of verses 1, 2, and 3. When he says in verse 1, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And then in verse 2, I am nothing. And then in verse 3, it profiteth me nothing. Now, how can you tell if a person is led by the Holy Spirit then? Well, here's your key in verses 4 through 7. Paul says in verse 4, Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth, 
beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Well, now, here's the indicator of a spirit-controlled believer. It's love, also referred in this passage in the King James Version as charity. The familiar Greek word here is agape. It literally means sacrifice, as you can see from these four verses. These four verses complement Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Those verses say, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Now let's be clear about this. These are the authentic indicators for which to look when determining whether or not a person is controlled by the Holy Spirit. Many misguided people, like the Corinthians, think that the indicator is how much a person carries on in the service with their spiritual gifts, as seen in chapter 12, verses 8 through 10. No, no, no. It's all about love demonstrated all day, seven days a week. Let's draw a painful conclusion here. If Paul proclaims in chapter 3 that they were, in fact, not spiritual not led by the Spirit, and by the way, he did, then how is it that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, we see that they manifested a seemingly unbridled passion of the demonstration of the spiritual gifts? Well, here's the answer, and please forgive me for saying this. They were faking. Let's be honest here. What other conclusion can you draw? Isn't that, in essence, exactly what Paul is saying about these Corinthians? Well, of course he is. Now, notice the specific qualities that are manifested when authentic love is in control. Verse 4, charity suffereth long. In other words, one gladly endures the burden that another places on him. Also in verse 4, is kind. One is kind to another, even though he might be inconvenienced by that person. In verse 4, we see that love vaunteth not itself is not puffed up. In other words, one's not motivated by ego or pride. In verse 5, we see that love doth not behave itself unseemly. It's used in the context here of not embarrassing the ones you love with inappropriate conduct. In verse 5, seeketh not her own. In other words, love pursues the interests of others over their own. Also in verse number 5 is, love is not easily provoked. One remains tolerant of others even in the face of provocation. Verse 5, love thinketh no evil. In other words, one does not desire to see harm come on another person. In verse 6, love does not rejoice in iniquity. In other words, you don't enjoy seeing another person stumble in sin. Verse 6, rejoiceth in the truth. You celebrate another's obedience to the truth. In other words, God's will. In verse 7, love bears all things. When you love somebody, you put up with annoyance or even difficulty. Verse 7, love believeth all things. In other words, it gives the benefit of the doubt, as in assumes the best and not the worst in people. People that you love. Verse 7, Hopeth all things, the Greek word elpizo there, means anticipates with favor rather than disdain. And verse 7, love endureth all things. Without reciprocation, a person remains favorably disposed toward another, even without reciprocation. So here's the deal. 
When your love is authentic towards someone else, the characteristics seen in verses 4-7 through will be realized. Consider the demands of an infant. Though there's no reciprocation or apparent thankfulness on the part of the baby, a mother is unselfishly meeting all the needs of that child's needs without resentment or any expected payback. That's a demonstration of love. Real love towards another person works that way no matter what the age. Now let's take a look at a real-life application. Marriage. We hear this chapter read a lot in marriages, in wedding ceremonies. Verses 4 through 7 are perhaps the keys to understanding the difference between a dating couple and a married couple. Before two people marry, the attributes of verses 4 through 7 generally come quite naturally. It's not atypical to see quite the opposite at some point after the marriage ceremony. Since agapao means to sacrifice for, if two people attempt to exercise the qualities of love found in these verses, a marriage relationship can be restored. In other words, when two people are mutually considerate of one another, you know, like they were when they were dating, then a natural love relationship, well, it grows. But when two people are mutually inconsiderate of one another, that relationship diminishes. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12 sums that up nicely when it says, Hatred stirreth up strifes, but love covereth all sins. When you love somebody, it just covers up all their blemishes and all their sins. And that's the message, by the way, of verses 4 through 7 here. These gifts, by the way, in chapter 13, verses 8 through 13, we see, are temporary. Verse 8, charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Now verse 8 says that love is a permanent quality of spirit leadership. The gifts of prophecy, tongues, and knowledge are only temporary. Well, how temporary, you might ask? Well, all three of these manifestations of the Holy Spirit were for the purpose of providing direct revelation from God to believers. It's the equivalent of what we have today in the Word of God, our Bible. Verse 9 emphasizes that each time someone manifested one of these gifts, it was just a partial, I say a partial, manifestation of God's revelation. It was never the whole thing. The Bible, on the other hand, is the whole thing. It's not partial. He says that when the whole thing is manifested, then partial revelation of God's Word will no longer be necessary. Well, then Paul gives two analogies to make this point. The first is the fact that a child never sees the big picture as adults do. A child's realization is comprised of very limited knowledge, whereas an adult's realization is based upon a more complete set of factors, based upon maturity through the experiences of life. The second analogy throws the casual reader off a little bit. It's a mirror illustration, but not like mirrors with which we're familiar 
They didn't have glass mirrors, but rather their mirrors were made of polished metals like brass. While we take for granted the ability to look into a $2 mirror and see a precise reflection of ourselves, they didn't have such a luxury with their crude, polished metal mirrors. In fact, they saw through a glass darkly, verse 12, when they looked into a mirror. Their mirrors of polished brass, they showed a blurred, distorted image of themselves when they looked into those polished brass mirrors. The face-to-face reference in this verse is meant by Paul to be a comparison of how we see ourselves in a mirror, which is blurred and distorted in those polished brass mirrors, as opposed to the clarity with which people see us directly when they stand face-to-face with us. In other words, partial knowledge is to full knowledge. I get this analogy. Partial knowledge is related to full knowledge as glass darkly viewing in those polished brass mirrors, blurred, distorted, as glass darkly viewing is to face-to-face viewing or clear and detailed. There's the analogy. So here's the question. When do we get this clarity, this fullness of God's revelation? Well, Paul didn't know when the New Testament canon would be closed, but I'm convinced he knew it would. I'm convinced that Paul knew that a time was coming when people would not be subject to just a partial revelation of Scripture provided by bits and pieces of prophecies, tongues, and words of knowledge. So is this talking about the rapture of the church when it says in verse 10, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away? Well, there are three primary reasons why I'm convinced that Paul is not, I say is not talking about the rapture here when he says when that which is perfect has come. First of all, there's simply no basis in the context of this passage to interject the rapture here. It seems that people have often attempted to see the rapture here simply because they, well, they didn't have a viable explanation for what the meaning really was. Secondly, at the rapture, none of the spiritual gifts of chapter 12, verses 8 through 10 will be practiced. They'll all be gone, not just the ones that are mentioned in chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. And thirdly, the wording is just not compatible with the rapture. When it says that, notice the word that, which is perfect, has come, then that, which is in part, shall be done away. Both in our English and in the Greek text, the neuter gender is specified for both adjectives, for the adjective perfect and the adjective part. Paul's showing a contrast between full and partial knowledge. If Paul were talking about Christ's return to rapture saints, he surely would have used the masculine gender and it would have been translated when he, which is perfect, has come. The word translated perfect here in this King James Version text is from the Greek adjective teleon, which means complete. In fact, we do proclaim that our Bible is the complete word of God, do we not? So here's the deal. Do you hold in your hands the completed revelation from God in your Bible? Well, if you believe yes, then you must admit that a partial revelation, a revelation that is acquired through tongues, prophecy, or word of knowledge, well, that's just plain old inferior to your Bible. 
Oh, one more question. Is it likely that Paul felt that the canon of the New Testament would one day be established as complete? The Greek word teleon there means perfect, translated perfect, means complete. And by the way, I should point out, do you believe that Paul felt that the canon would one day be completed of the New Testament just as the Old Testament canon had been completed prior to his day? Well, absolutely Paul believed and expected that. So with that established, why speak in tongues and prophesy today at all? Well, that's a good question, and we're going to answer that question when we get over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton. 